You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. You know, in the air tonight, not the episode of this show in the air tonight, but the Phil Collins Genesis hit in the air tonight, maybe you don't. Maybe you're too young. Nah, I'm kidding. Nobody listens to this show is too young. I'm not hip. And if you're listening, neither are you. I'm sorry you had to find out this way. But there are benefits to our unhipness. We share a common language, you and I. So when I describe this episode as the in the air tonight of constant episodes, you know what I mean. You're not even thrown by the awkward fact that there is already a constant episode entitled In the Air Tonight. We all know that In the Air Tonight is the land of confusion of constant episodes, obviously. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. You know how in the air tonight, the song this episode is like, not the episode which is named after the song. I don't know what's so complicated about this. You know how in the air tonight is all about that big beat-dropping drum fill? And as soon as it starts, you think, oh, here comes that drum solo. Every time Phil gets to the end of a verse, you put your hands up, ready to air drum along with him, and then, nope, not yet. Over and over, for what feels like forever, you're sure it's about to happen. And over and over, for what feels like forever, you're wrong. And just when you've about given up, when you start to doubt that there even is a point, that your weight will ever be rewarded, all of a sudden, it's all... That's what this episode is like. It's like in the air tonight. Which is why I'm calling it... Walking on Sunshine. See? Simple. While we're going to be waiting a long time for the drums, this story still begins with a bang. Two of them, actually, delivered by a pair of flintlock pistols tied securely together and hidden beneath a man's overcoat. On the afternoon of July 9th, 1787, a couple were walking up Prince's Street near Leicester Square in London when, out of the blue, a figure in an overcoat came up behind them. Yes, that overcoat. The first sign the couple had of this strange interloper was the bang of the two pistols tied together, aimed directly at the young woman, and fired at point-blank range. The guns were so close to their target that they lit her dress on fire. Yet somehow, she walked away from the attack unscathed. Who was this curious gunman? And who were his targets? And how did a young woman suffer two simultaneous gunshots with the barrels practically touching her and come out with only scorch marks on her blouse. 
All the makings of a juicy mystery, right? Definitely. And I'll attempt to answer all those questions. But they're not what we're here for. First, the couple. They were George Nickel and Mary Boydell. George was born in Scotland in 1740 or else 1741, and if that sentence seems frustratingly vague to you, wait until we get around to Mary. When he was either 28, 29, 30, or 31, he started working for his uncle, a bookseller in London's Strand. He soon moved into publishing, and after his uncle died, he became bookseller to the Great Wardrobe, which was a very fancy way of saying that he took care of the king's personal library. Then, in November of 1786, he went to a party at the home of a fellow publisher and painter named Josiah Boydell, Mary's brother. Did they meet that night at Josiah's house? I don't know. Well, probably not, actually. But it was at that dinner party that George Nichols' life started becoming entwined with the Boydell family. Mary and Josiah Boydell were born to Samuel and Anne in Flintshire County, Wales. Samuel was a farmer and Anne was his wife. It was a modest life in Flintshire, which Josiah and Mary might have been left to inherit, except that Samuel also had a brother who lived in London. His name was John Boydell, and by the time Mary and Josiah were born, he was fast on his way to being one of the richest, most successful, and important people in England. John Boydell was meant to be a surveyor, following in his father's footsteps, but when he was 20, he saw an engraved print of a castle etched by William Henry Toms. Boydell was so entranced by the print that he begged Toms to teach him. For the next six years, John Boydell apprenticed with Toms, working long hours in his print shop during the day and attending drawing classes with William Hogarth of the Rake's Progress fame at night. He was a diligent and ambitious worker. He toiled such hours that he was able to buy out the last year of his apprenticeship and open his own print shop in 1746. All the elbow grease and pluck in the world wasn't enough to do the thing that Boydell had wanted, though. Make him a great artist. I mean, he was decent enough, but none of his landscapes and street scenes were anything special, and he knew it. His first two books, one of English bridges, another of English landscapes, found a good amount of success. Striking while the iron was hot, John Boydell used the proceeds to begin buying, printing, and selling the works of others. Mostly that meant buying up prints by French and Italian artists and selling them to the English. It was a good strategy, but Boydell wanted more. He wanted the trade to go both ways. If he could get his French brokers to agree to an exchange, he could not only make more money, but bring up the opinion of English art by spreading it across the continent. The only problem was, France didn't want England's art. The consensus, the embarrassingly reasonable consensus, was that English engraving wasn't very good, just like John Boydell's. Boydell put all of his efforts and an unheard of amount of money into changing that impression. He hired the best engraver in the country, William Willette, and paid him a small fortune, 100 pounds, to make a print of The Destruction of the Children of Niobe by Richard Wilson, the greatest living Welsh landscape painter. The gamble paid off. Even though he only sold the print for five shillings apiece, he ended up earning 2,000 pounds off of Niobe alone. The commission he paid Woolett single-handedly drove up the price for engravers throughout London. And, most importantly, the French bought it. A lot. In fact, this one engraving changed the whole marketplace. Boydell began selling it in 1761. By 1770, 
France was buying English prints like they were frog leg berets, and John Boydell's business had entirely shifted. He was like a cultural ambassador, exporting English art to Europe and raking in the francs. Over the next decade and a half, he embarked upon even larger and more expensive projects, a collection of prints of the most famous, or in the dainty words of John Boydell, the most capital paintings in England. And that proved profitable. He came out with a sequel, the most capital paintings in the collection of Her Imperial Majesty, the Empress of Russia. Boydell's dominance in the world of printing continued to grow and grow, and his rising boat lifted all ships. In 1760, there had been no export market for British printing at all. Literally none. By 1785, the sector Boydell single-handedly opened up was a £200,000-per-year business. For comparison, that same year, prints imported to Britain fetched a grand total of £100. Boydell was welcomed into the Royal Academy and presented with a gold medal. The next year, he started working on his biggest and most consequential project of all. He'd brought a claim to British engraving and landscape painting. Now he aimed to do the same for a British writer, William Shakespeare. The theater was all the rage in mid-1700s England, but it was hard to entice playwrights to write anything for them because there were no copyright protections for plays. So, to fill out their seasons, theaters chose to produce old plays they didn't have to pay for. Oh, how the times have changed. Particularly, they started putting on plays by Shakespeare. Oh, how the times have changed, I already said it. Along with productions of his plays, Shakespeare also began seeping into the popular consciousness through paintings of notable characters and scenes from his plays. This tradition began chiefly with William Hogarth, Boydell's teacher. Soon, everybody wanted a piece of that big Shakespeare money. Editions of his plays were published by everyone with a printing press. In order to differentiate their products, most of these books needed a gimmick. This one was edited by Samuel Johnson. This one had footnotes to explain the language. This one had all the naughty bits taken out. That seems like the opposite of what people would like. But the first 18th century Shakespeare book had the best gimmick of all. In 1709, publisher Jacob Tonson and his editor, poet Nicholas Rowe, had given theirs pictures. That was the germ of John Boydell's project. He wanted to commission all the best artists in Britain to paint scenes from Shakespeare. They'd all be hung in a great public gallery. Then they'd have prints made and put together the greatest collection of Shakespeare's writing ever published, fully illustrated by England's finest. In the process, he could elevate Shakespeare's reputation still further, advance British historical painting, and make everybody involved filthy stinking rich. The idea of the Boydell Shakespeare Gallery was born at a dinner party in November of 1786 at the house of his nephew, Josiah Boydell. Nearly everyone who was at Josiah's dinner party eventually tried to claim that they were the one who really came up with the Shakespeare Gallery idea. That included Benjamin West, the painter of the death of General Wolfe, which was the most famous British painting of the 18th century and which John Boydell had earned £15,000 selling a print of. Paul Sandby, the watercolorist and co-founder of the Royal Academy, said it was his idea too. And so did George Nicholl, bookseller to the great wardrobe and soon to be paramour to Mary Boydell. Josiah had come to apprentice under John when he was just 14. 
Mary probably came with him to London, or else came by herself later. Frankly, nobody bothered to write down anything about Mary, so all we really know is that she ended up living under the protection of her uncle some way or another. She made a number of wonderful etchings of her own, but few enough of them were preserved because, you know, woman. Josiah, on the other hand, was given every advantage. In addition to his apprenticeship with his uncle, he trained in painting with that one and only Benjamin West. He was also allowed to become a critical part of the Boydell Shakespeare Gallery, along with George Nichol. John Boydell's Shakespeare project took 20 years to complete, but it was a roaring triumph. Well, at first, anyway. The gallery building itself was one of the most popular attractions in London, and at its height, held around 170 paintings. When it opened in 1789, the Times called it the first stone of an English school of painting, and wrote, Such an institution will place in the calendar of arts the name of Boydell in the same rank with Medici of Italy. But it took a further two years for the first print edition to come out. The reach of the project outstripped its grasp, and as the etchings fell further and further behind, John, Josiah, and George started having to cut corners. They employed more engravers and less talented ones. They mixed styles, they rushed work. Many who had bought subscriptions to the book were disappointed and withdrew their support. Eventually, the Boydell Shakespeare Gallery, which did so much for the reputations of British painting and for Shakespeare's himself, played a large part in ruining the Boydell family. Everyone agreed, however, that the layout and typeface of the text itself, not to mention the gilding on the pages, was quite nice. George Nichol had been in charge of those details and earned through them the trust and esteem of the Boydells. John, Josiah, and what the heck, how about Mary too? They fell in love, or not, depending on who you believe, and on July 9th, 1787, were walking up Prince's Street near Leicester Square when a figure in a long coat approached and fired a brace of pistols directly at Mary, setting her dress on fire. Yet, somehow, Mary was unharmed other than a bruise on her shoulder. George spun around and yelled, Are you the villain that fired? The man said he was, and before he could do anything else, a footman came forward and wrestled the guns out of his hands. George escorted Mary into a shop for safekeeping and then returned to the street where he personally detained the assailant and dragged him to the nearest magistrate. The man was identified as Dr. John Elliott. The whole thing was surreal. George didn't even know this Dr. John Elliott. Neither did Mary. Or, more precisely, Mary said she didn't. The records we have of John Elliott's assault on Mary Boydell are thoroughly contradictory, as each one was written by a party who supported one or the other's side of things. So it's tough to say just what's true or not. The official line out of the Boydell nickel camp was that Mary did not know John Elliott at all, or at most, she had met him once or twice. That seems pretty unlikely to me. Yet the other side of the story, the one offered by John Elliott and his supporters, is... Oh, well, look, it might be true, but it's also a feat of slut-shaming so grand it would make Rush Limbaugh's corpse blush. Seriously, it's like the incel-er text. So brace yourself for all of that. Oh man, we're getting so close to the drum solo. Or are we? First, a bit about Dr. John Elliot. The defenders of John Elliot called him a genius, and that's not a bad word for him. 
They also say his genius was broken by the profligate woman known as Mary Boydell, and that he's the real victim in this whole affair, and that is a very bad sentiment. Bad. Bad sentiment. Go to your room. He was born in Somerset in 1747, to what, we are assured, were a set of very respectable parents. When he was 12 years old, he wrote one of those tragedies that weren't economically feasible in pre-copyright Britain, along with a number of poems. Soon after, he destroyed the whole set. He had come around to the opinion that math, medicine, and natural history were his real callings. So he moved to London and apprenticed with an apothecary there. If Eliot's version of things is to be believed, that is when he met Mary Boydell. Let's come back to that, though. After finishing up his apprenticeship, he set up his own apothecary shop and earned his MD. In his medical practice, he dedicated much of his time to treating the poor and indigent. In his free time, he wrote tracts on medical theory and natural philosophy, conjectures on electricity, chemistry, physiology, and much more. In 1780, he published Philosophical Observations on the Senses, in which he became the first person to argue that the sense organs, particularly the eyes and ears, must contain mechanical resonators, which give off signals in response to stimuli. Years after he starved to death, oh, that's an enticing detail, isn't it? Wonder if that's what we're here to talk about. Years after he starved to death, his Elements of Natural Philosophy was released as a textbook for medical students. In it, Eliot became the first person in recorded history to figure out how color vision works. The different colors, like notes of sound, may be considered as so many gradations of tone, for they are caused by vibrations of the ray of light beating on the eye. Red is produced by the slowest vibrations of the rays, and violet by the quickest. If the red-making ray falls on the eye, they excite the red-making vibrations in that part of the retina, whereupon they impinge, but do not excite the others, because they are not in unison with them. From hence it may be understood that the rays of light do not cause colors in the eye any otherwise than by the mediations of the vibrations or colors liable to be excited in the retina. The colors are occasioned by the latter, the rays of light only serve to excite them into action. So, likewise, if blue and yellow making rays fall together on the same part of the retina, they excite the blue and yellow making vibrations respectively. But because they are so close together as not to be distinguished apart, they are perceived as a mixed color, or green. It would take another 15 years after Eliot died for Thomas Young to formulate the same trichromatic theory of color vision and get most all the credit for it, since he was a respected natural philosopher who didn't shoot braces of pistols into the backs of young women in Leicester Square. There's no getting around it now. We're going to have to talk about John Eliot's relationship with Mary Boydell, or the version of the relationship he related in his confession and which features in his anonymously authored biography. According to both of them, and I should note that the confession is definitely the main source of information for the biography, come to think of it, it seems to me that there's a decent chance Eliot was the author of the biography too, and it was published along with his confession. They only disagree on one. Mm, somewhat major point. So really, don't skimp on the grains of salt here. According to Eliot's side, he and Mary Boydell began a flirtation soon after meeting when he was still an apprentice. They had something of a relationship. The exact scope and nature is hidden beneath the impenetrable modesty of Georgian prose, but Mary would not commit to him either because she thought his upbringing and fortune was too meager or because her uncle, John Boydell, had plans for her. In any event, Eliot felt like he was being taken and cut ties with Mary. 
having, quote, revolved to fubdu a fruitless peffin, as his biography esslessly puts it. When he heard about her engagement, presumably to George Nichol, although it's weirdly ambiguous, he was seized in a fit of passion, or paffin, if you prefer. He abandoned his business and fled London for the countryside, where he wandered in heartbreak for 12 years. Yes, I know, my eyes are also rolling, but if we can stifle for a second, we can also observe that this time frame is super confusing. Doing the arithmetic, Elliot must have left London in 1775 at the very latest, which is 11 years before Josiah Boydell's dinner party, which came before George and Mary's engagement, which was the reason Elliot left London 12 years in the past. Is that the cue for the drum solo? Is this episode about time loops? Oh man, well, that's disappointing. Maybe John Elliot misheard the news. Or maybe Mary had a previous engagement before George Nichol came around. For his part, George was married and had a child before proposing to Mary, although that is literally all we know about that. No names, no dates, no nothing. It's also terrifically possible that Elliot invented, or at least exaggerated, his 12-year pilgrimage. I don't know. Regardless, he eventually came back to London, his heart at long last mended, and re-established his medical practice. And then, Mary Boydell showed up at his door. From his confession, My unhappy flame burst forth from its aphids with as much force as it had never been extinguished. She met, or femed at least, to meet my renovated paffin with corresponding emotions. We exchanged a thousand tender professations of unalterable love. Here's the one major point on which Eliot's confession and his biography disagree. According to Eliot, he and Mary had to keep their relationship a secret because Mary's uncle, John Boydell, wanted her to marry George Nichol. According to his biography, Mary was playing both ends against the middle, telling Eliot she didn't love George and telling George she didn't know Eliot. George and Mary soon announced their engagement, and John Elliot decided to do... something desperate. Let's fast forward once more back to where we began, July 9th, 1787, Prince's Street. George Nichol and Mary Boydell are walking down the street when, out of the blue, John Elliot fires two pistols tied together at Mary from underneath his coat. The shots light Mary's clothes on fire, but she gets away with only a light bruise. George helps her into a shop and returns to the street where a passing footman has restrained John Elliot. Then George Nichol grabs John Elliot and takes him to the local magistrate, after which Dr. John Elliot is remanded to Newgate Prison. John Elliot had picked a very bad era in which to don a long coat and fire a brace of yarn-tied pistols at an unarmed woman's back. After the collapse of the South Sea bubble, which we explored in the episode Perpetuum Mobile, crime had become endemic around England. In response, Parliament passed the Black Act of 1723, which named a grand total of 350 crimes punishable by the death penalty. After the passage of the Black Act, you could be executed for poaching deer, setting fire to hay, being disguised in a forest, or even that most frivolous of crimes, shooting people in the back. Dr. John Elliot was indicted under the Black Act for willfully and maliciously discharging two pistols loaded with powder and diver balls at the person of Miss Mary Boydell. 
At trial, George Nickel testified not only to the incident, but to the journey he had taken with the prisoner to Justice Hyde's. He said that on their way, Elliot, quote, expressed great joy at what he had done, and in particular, said that now he should die in peace, as he had sent the lady before him. Once they arrived, Justice Hyde found two more pistols, also tied together, in the other side of John Elliot's coat, locked and loaded. While he was being examined, a woman walked in and told Hyde, Elliot, and Nickel that Mary Boydell was unharmed. According to Nickel, this news caused John Elliot to clash his hands together in agony and exclaim, Is she not dead? At that point, the examination broke down, Nichol said, because John Elliot would not stop screaming expletives about Mary, her uncle, and the Boydell family. The footman, as well as a shoemaker on Prince's Street, corroborated Nichols' account. The defense, in the person of one barrister Sylvester, made the case that Dr. John Elliot was not guilty by reason of insanity. He brought forth four witnesses to prove it. There was Mr. O'Donnell, an apothecary who worked for Dr. Elliot, who said that he had, quote, observed symptoms of insanity in him, even though at the same time he praised Elliot as a caring and able physician who took prompt and proper care of his patients. The contradiction apparently angered the prosecutor, who asked a series of questions that so confused O'Donnell that he had to give up and apologize for not being able to give a clear answer. The defense also called two men who had lodged with John Elliot. One of them was also John Boydell's gardener, both of whom described Elliot as good, quiet, and harmless, but also most certainly insane. Then there was the star witness for the defense, one Dr. Samuel Foart Simmons of St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics. Dr. Simmons was a fellow of the Royal Society, as well as the Society of Antiquaries of London and president of the London Medical Society. On top of all that, he was the editor of several English medical journals, which is how he came to be friends with Dr. John Elliot for more than a decade. Hard to imagine a better witness for the job, huh? And it was the opinion of Dr. Samuel Foart Simmons, head of St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics, fellow of the Royal Society and president of the London Medical Society, that his longtime friend was insane. He had reached that conclusion, he told the court, after reading a paper written by Dr. Elliot, which was sent to him half a year earlier. It was entitled, Experiments and Observations on Light and Colors, to which is prefixed the analogy between heat and motion. The paper begins with a proposition, quote, that the color of a shining body is connected with its sensible heat, and advances from red towards violet as the heat is increased. From this, he then argues that the sun and the stars must lose heat over time. The sun, he says, must have started as a violet-hot object, but now is much cooler, only orange-yellow hot. In time, it will cool to be deep red, and then it will cease to shine. Elliot suggests that if astronomers a hundred years from his time can measure the color of the sun against the color it shone then, they could then triangulate both its age and its life expectancy. Okay, so far so, well, not good exactly, but not noticeably insane, right? John Elliot then goes on to theorize that the blueness of the sky originates from light being reflected by the earth, and that, quote, by the air, few rays are reflected besides violet, indigo, and blue, and therefore only an azure color, the result of a mixture of these, is seen. That's dangerously close to being right, 
which might be the sort of thing that could get you called insane in 1787, but no, that's not it either. The part of the paper that convinced Dr. Simmons that John Eliot was insane and that he hoped would convince the court likewise was the last part in which John Eliot argued that there was intelligent life on the sun. That's it. That is what we are here for. After this break. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. You have to hire someone with the exact skills you need to help your business. How do you know who's really best for the role? Save time and screen for quality candidates with the skills you need with Indeed Assessments. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skill sets to help make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Dr. John Elliott's theory on solarian life went like this. First of all, and maybe most critically, the sun is not a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace. To prove this, Elliot, rather surprisingly, points out its brightness. If the sun were a dense body ignited by heat, it would be like a coal. Coal burns very hot, but it does not produce much light. We don't use coals to light the dark. Instead, we use candles, which give off far more light than a coal, even while it gives off decidedly less heat. Besides which, if the sun were a burning ball of fuel, that fuel should have long ago burnt off and the star extinguished. This argument might sound familiar, since it's basically a rephrasing of a problem we talked about a few episodes back in It's a Date. Nobody up until the late 19th and early 20th centuries had any explanation for how stars, if they were gigantic fiery orbs, could possibly keep going for as long as they did, because no one had any idea of nuclear fission, fusion, or radioactivity yet. But in 1787, the problem seemed even more daunting, because most people didn't yet know how fire worked either. By the early 1700s, the theory of the four elements laid out by that volcano-diving demigod Empedocles and popularized by fucking Aristotle was beginning to show its age. Let's imagine that nugget of coal Eliot was talking about. According to Aristotle, it was composed of some mixture of earth, water, air, and fire. The burning of that coal was the process of the fire portion escaping. But by the 18th century, chemists knew that burning things didn't always make them lose mass. It sure seemed like fire was a process of decomposition, but whatever was being lost wasn't a regular part of the material. Along came George Ernest Stahl, professor of chemistry and medicine at the University of Halle. He posited that there was a flammable substance which he called phlogiston. To Stahl, phlogiston was an element in a sense that sort of halfway between Aristotle's understanding and our modern one. Anything that burns must be a compound, made up in some portion of phlogiston. And when it burns, that phlogiston is replaced by oxide, which was like anti-phlogiston. Naturally, since the burning phlogiston was replaced by oxide, it made sense that the burnt material maintained the same weight. And so Stahl's phlogiston theory became the new understanding of fire. The only problem... Well, the, the primary problem was that burnt metals didn't just maintain their weight, they gained it. In the 1770s, Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier, father of chemistry and member of the Scientific Avengers supergroup from our episode Mesmerizing, demonstrated that combustion required oxygen, and that said oxygen contributed the added mass, thus pretty neatly destroying the phlogiston theory. But Dr. Elliot and plenty of others hadn't yet either heard about or absorbed Lavoisier's conclusions. In a phlogiston-based universe, the sun should have spent up its fuel or become dephlogisticated even sooner, and the whole star ought to have turned to ash and oxide a long time ago. 
The only way Elliot thought the sun's phlogiston could have been renewed was through the respiration of plants, which, if the sun were indeed the great burning ball people supposed, should have themselves been burnt up. So Elliot said, it must be that the light of the sun is created by what he calls a luminous meteor in its atmosphere. The meteor, or meteors, lights up the atmosphere thanks to inflammable vapors that are constantly rising up from the sun's body. The combustion in the atmosphere creates a mix of water and carbon dioxide, or what at the time Elliot called fixed air, which descends to the surface where the plant life processes it back into phlogiston, which rises up to be burnt and the cycle constantly renews. Since the meteor and its lighted atmosphere are like a candle rather than a coal, they don't give off an amount of heat that impedes life on the surface. If you think that sounds impossible, Elliot asks you to consider the aurora borealis, which lights up the northern skies, but does not cause the land below it to heat up. Sunspots, Elliot says, are temporary holes in the luminous atmosphere through which we can see the surface. That they appear black proves that the surface does not receive much of the light itself, meaning that the beings living there are able to see without being blinded by the brightness we experience if we stare too long at the outside. In the sun, as in our earth, Elliot writes, there may be seas and dry land, woods and open plains, hill and dale, rain and fair weather. And as the light, so the season will be perpetual, or diversified only by distance and occasional interstices in the luminous meteor. A fruitful fancy might represent it as a very desirable habitation. He concludes, Many other ideas related to this subject might be started, but perhaps too much has been said already. I shall content myself, therefore, with having shown, by analogy of what sometimes happens in our own atmosphere, that the sun and fixed stars may possibly be as cold as our earth, and as fruitful, and as plentifully inhabited by life of some kind, and therefore that those numerous and immense bodies may be more useful in the creation and redound more to the honor of their great creator than is at present supposed. Perhaps you have some questions. Like, how would the sun's light heat the earth so much but leave its own surface cool? Or, why would that light not be bright to those living on that surface? You might even accept Elliot's idea that the luminous meteor had to be renewed by plant life, but still ask why that meant there had to be intelligent animals around. There are plenty more good questions besides, but I think the most critical one you need to ask before going forward should be addressed to me. It reads... Why are we talking about a theory that was so out there it was entered into evidence at trial to prove John Elliot was insane? Yes, good question. Good point, even. I'll explain, but to do so, I have to back up just a second. At trial, John Elliot's defense argued he was insane. To prove this, they called Dr. Simmons, friend of Elliot, prominent doctor and head of St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics. Dr. Simmons said, yes, John Elliot is insane. And to prove it, he described the paper I have just described for you. In fact, he read portions of it aloud to the court. The prosecution countered this testimony fairly elegantly. They said that the belief that there was life on the sun wasn't insane. In fact, they said the view that there was life on the sun was a fairly common one, held by many people who were not just sane, but well-respected and learned scientists. To prove such an assertion, you'd think they'd have had a list of names, some sort of history or a genealogy for this idea. 
If they presented such a thing, it didn't make the record. The closest it comes is comparing Eliot's theory that the sun was inhabited to the Comte de Buffon's theory that it was 75,000 years old, which we also talked about in It's a Date. Hardly analogous positions. It doesn't seem as though the prosecution had any proof whatsoever that anyone other than Dr. John Eliot believed there was life on the sun, much less intelligent life. But I do. There's a great line read by the great Alan Rickman in The Great Die Hard. When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. But that's almost the exact opposite of what actually happened. Alexander the Great was very interested in philosophy. He was best friends with fucking Aristotle, who agreed to teach him, and admiring of Diogenes the Cynic, who refused to. When Alexander began to plow across Asia, he brought a pair of philosophers along with him, Pyrrho and his teacher, Anaxarchus. Not a lot is known of Anaxarchus other than that he died by being crushed in a giant mortar and pestle, but according to Plutarch, it was Anaxarchus who made Alexander weep. In the Moralia, Plutarch writes, Alexander, when he heard Anaxarchus argue that there were infinite worlds, it is said that he wept. And when his friends asked him what things had happened to him to be wept for, is it not to be wept for, quote he, since they say there be infinite worlds, and I am not yet lord of one? While we don't know anything about Anaxarchus's infinite worlds idea outside of this anecdote, we can make a pretty solid guess that he wasn't talking about other planets, let alone suns. Instead, he was probably referring to an infinity of worlds either occurring over the infinity of time, or else something closer to alternate presence. Like in Sliders, everyone's favorite television show that they're not at all surprised to hear referenced in the 2021 podcast. This view was held by a bunch of Greek philosophers, including Democritus, Epicurus, Lucretius, all of whom were more or less drowned out by Plato and fucking Aristotle. It isn't until the Islamic Golden Age that people started thinking about other worlds in this time and material plane, most notably with the great 12th century Sufi philosopher and scientist Fakhr al-Din al-Razi. In his book Higher Issues, he wrote, It is established by evidence that there exists beyond the world a void without a terminal limit, and it is established as well by evidence that God Most High has power over all contingent beings. Therefore, he, the Most High, has the power to create millions of worlds beyond the world, such that each one of those worlds be bigger and more massive than this one, as well as having the like of what this world has of the throne, the chair, the heavens, and the earth, and the sun and the moon. Both the 14th century French philosopher Nicole Oresma and the German 15th century cardinal Nicholas of Cusa thought that other celestial bodies might be their own worlds, and on them there might be life. Nicholas even went the extra mile, writing in Of Learned Ignorance, It may be conjectured that in the area of the sun there exist solar beings, bright and enlightened intellectual denizens, and by nature more spiritual than such as may inhabit the moon, who are possibly lunatics, whilst those on earth are more gross and material. It may be supposed that those solar intelligences are highly actualized and little in potency, while the earth denizens are much in potency and little in act, and the moon dwellers betwixt and between. After Nicholas come two of science's most favorite firebrands and two of the most important figures in the Solarian debate, Nicholas Copernicus and Giordano Bruno. 
Copernicus didn't personally advocate for life on other worlds, but it was his observation that the Earth goes round the sun and not the other way round that made the idea of extraterrestrial life not just possible for medieval Europe, but even necessary. If the Earth orbited the sun, then the Earth was just a planet, like all the others. And if the sun were just a star, as Bruno claimed, then it stood to reason that there might be planets around all the rest of them. Why would God have created all that space if nobody was using it? The only acceptable answers were either that Copernicus and Bruno were wrong, the Earth was special and central and the only habitable place in the universe, or else there must be life everywhere. And for it to have purpose, that life must be intelligent, so that it is able to praise God. Giordano even went one step further. The sun was much bigger than even the largest planet, and some of the stars might be even bigger than our sun, so didn't it stand to reason that there was life on them, too? Of course, Giordano Bruno was burnt at the stake for heresy, but to be fair, his belief in aliens was probably a very insignificant part of that. It took a good while for heliocentrism to catch on. When rumors of Copernicus reached Martin Luther, he's reported to have said at his dinner table, There is talk of a new astrologer who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes round instead of the sky, the sun, the moon, just as if somebody were moving in a carriage or ship might hold that he was sitting still and at rest while the earth and the trees walked and moved. But that is how things are nowadays. When a man wishes to be clever, he must invent something special. And the way he does it must be the best. The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. However, as Holy Scripture tells us, so did Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. John Calvin called heliocentrism a perversion to the order of nature. But as time went by, telescopes improved and geocentrism became more and more untenable. It got a little more juice after a little dust-up between Galileo and the Catholic Church encouraged other astronomers to maybe just keep their mouths shut about the whole thing, but gradually the Copernican view won out, and soon nearly everyone became a heliocentrist. Which means that most anybody that gave the matter any thought also came around to Bruno's view, that there had to be life out there too. In 1686, the French author Bernard Le Bouvier de Fontenelle published a book explaining heliocentrism in common language for the masses. It was entitled Conversations on the Plurality of Worlds, which meant exactly what it sounds like it meant. There are many worlds and the Earth but one of them. William Whiston popularized the work of Isaac Newton, provided the English translations for the works of Josephus and maybe inserted some of the bullshit lines, and worked unsuccessfully to solve the longitude problem. Man, have we talked about the longitude problem? Okay, remind me later. He was also maybe the most neurotic believer in a plurality of worlds. He wasn't just bothered by the idea of the surfaces of other planets going uninhabited. He also thought that the insides of the planets needed a purpose. So he proposed that the Earth and all the other planets were full of hollow cavities that contained intelligent, God-fearing life. And in that group, he included the Sun. Gawain Knight was a physicist who became famous for discovering a way to strongly magnetize steel, which he used to make better compasses, which were a critical part of the longitude problem. But not today, Satan. Those compasses became a standard issue for the Royal Navy. Like so many people in this story, he was a fellow of the Royal Society who awarded him the Copley Medal in 1747, the highest honor in British science. A year later, he wrote that the sun and stars, quote, 
are no longer frightful gulfs of fire, but inhabitable worlds. Those philosophers who thought them too hot for the habitation of salamanders, and those sublime genii who thought them to be hells, will now perhaps be in pain, lest the inhabitants should freeze with cold. Six years after that, he was punished for this insane statement by being named the first principal librarian of the newly formed British Museum. Now we're getting perilously close to the life and times of Dr. John Eliot, Mary Boydell, and George Nichol, a time in which the presumption of life on other planets wasn't just acceptable, but downright popular. Still, life on Mars is one thing, a thing I got yelled at on Twitter a while back for suggesting was still possible. Life on the sun is a whole other ball of wax. It seemed evident to most people that whatever the sun was made of, it was all on fire. Perhaps as troubling, Isaac Newton had convincingly shown that the gravity on its surface would be unmanageably strong. Nevertheless, Dr. Eliot was not alone, by a long shot. The mid to late 18th century was probably the zenith for believers in Solarians, and those believers counted among their number a heaping handful of the most prominent scientists of the day. Roger Joseph Boscovich was a Ragusian astronomer and physicist who figured out how to determine a planet's equator and orbit with just three observations of its features and positions. He determined that the moon lacked an atmosphere, he figured out how to repair St. Peter's Dome, and formulated a scientifically viable model of determinism. He also said that there was life on the sun. Johann Ehlert Bode became the director of the Berlin Observatory in 1786, the same year John Eliot fired his pistols into Mary Boydell's back. He was responsible for formulating the Titius Bode Law, which helped William Herschel discover Uranus. Didn't I say we were going to do an episode about Herschel's weirdest belief? Well, this is it. But first, Bode. Bode, as you can no doubt guess, advocated for life on the sun. Who could doubt their existence, he asked. The most wise author of the world assigns an insect living on a grain of sand and will certainly not permit the great ball of the sun to be empty of creatures and still less of rational inhabitants who are ready gratefully to praise the author of their life. In 1776, Bode made and published an illustration he had drawn on what the surface of the sun and its inhabitants must look like. Unlike Eliot, he was happy to suppose that it was blindingly bright, but that the Solarians, who also glowed, were granted by God the ability to see in such light. There was no more prominent advocate for life on the sun than William Herschel, in part because there was no more prominent astronomer than William Herschel. We've talked about Herschel... How many times have we talked about Herschel? A bunch. He discovered Uranus. He discovered several moons of Uranus and a couple more around Saturn. He discovered the seasonality of the Martian polar caps. He discovered infrared radiation. He discovered the relationship between light and heat. He cataloged several thousand nebulae. His son, also an astronomer named John Herschel, who will also be a part of this story, invented the blueprint, made great strides in ultraviolet light, pioneered photography, and gave birth to William Herschel II, one of the guys who invented forensic fingerprinting. And both William Sr. and John believed, vociferously, that there was life on the sun. Too bad so sad for the prosecution, Herschel didn't publish his belief until several years after John Eliot's trial, even though he'd been working on his theory for at least five years before it. So they couldn't have invoked his name to prove the assailant's sanity. But once Herschel got going, he really, really got going. 
1795, he presented a paper entitled On the Nature of the Sun and Fixed Stars to the Royal Society, of which Herschel was an esteemed fellow, Natch. Aside from his theological reasoning, the heft of Herschel's argument came down to sunspots. He thought that the bright part of the sun was formed by luminous clouds, and that sunspots represented either gaps in their coverage and or mountains rising above them. Since the light was caused by clouds rather than fire, Herschel concluded that the sun was no different from the other planets, and since the other planets were all filled with intelligent life, kind of a logical leap there, but no matter, the sun must also have inhabitants whose organs, quote, are adapted to the peculiar circumstances of that vast globe. Like Eliot, Herschel too said that the light and heat of the sun were separate things. In Herschel's view, light only created heat when it came into contact with a calorific medium that absorbed it. In order to keep the sun's surface cool, God had deigned that it should have very little of whatever that was. Six years later, Herschel returned with a different explanation. The sun had two layers of clouds, one that emitted all the light, and a second below that one, which reflected that light off into space, once again keeping the surface cool and shady. The reaction to Herschel's proposal was... Mm, mixed? Among his critics were Thomas Young, who established the wave theory of light, helped decipher the Rosetta Stone, discovered that the lens of the eye bends to focus at different distances, and made several dozen more contributions to knowledge, earning him the nickname, The Last Man Who Knew Everything. Young pointed out that even if he granted every supposition Herschel laid out, which he was not wont to do, it wouldn't change the cold, hard fact that the density of the sun would crush any life upon it. David Brewster, who invented the first portable stereoscope for viewing 3D images, concurred. But more were welcoming to Herschel. Thomas Thompson, yet another fellow of the Royal Society, who helped popularize early atomic theory and gave silicon the name silicon, thought Herschel was right on. In 1804, he revised his book System of Chemistry to include both the atomic theory and Herschel's description of the sun in the same book. The botanist, writer, and friend to Rousseau, Jacques-Henri Bernardin de Saint-Pierre, extended even further than Herschel. Not only was there life on the moon and other planets and the sun and the stars, but even on comets. His argument is the same one we've become familiar with. There must be vegetables in them because there is heat. There must be eyes because there is light. And there must be intelligent beings because intelligence is displayed in their formation. Saint-Pierre also suggested that, perhaps, the sun was where people went after they died. The Scottish Presbyterian minister and astronomer Thomas Dick wrote in 1838 that it would be presumptuous in man to affirm that the Creator had not placed innumerable objects of sentient and intelligent beings throughout the expansive regions of the sun. He did some very, very entertaining back-of-the-envelope math and concluded that the solar system contained more than 21 trillion intelligent beings, with the smallest of all populations being here on Earth. Even the rings of Saturn outdid us. But without question, the most strident and dogged advocate for William Herschel's theory of the inhabited sun was his son, John Herschel. John stepped into his daddy's shoes in almost every way, taking his place as the most prominent and celebrated astronomer in England after William's death. He named four more moons around Uranus and seven more around Saturn and discovered a handful of galaxies, too. He believed in his father's 
extreme version of the plurality of worlds, but he also understood that by the 1830s, it was becoming a pretty hard theory to square with the evidence. Chemistry was more and more at a loss to explain how the sun kept on shining, which, again, we talked about in It's a Date, and Herschel's double cloud glowing theory only made the problem more complicated. But in 1860, the Solarian theory got one last shot in the arm. That year, James Hall Naismith announced that he had seen something on the sun. Naismith was a Scottish engineer who had gotten rich inventing pneumatic tools, particularly the drop hammer, and retired at just 48 years old. He bought a large estate in Kent, which he named Hammerfield, that's fucking rad, and took up some hobbies, mostly astronomy. He built a large telescope at Hammersfield, which he hoped to use to photograph the surface of the moon at high magnification. But it didn't work, so he instead built plaster casts of the surface of the moon based on what he thought it would look like and photographed those instead. And in 1860, like I said, he announced that he had seen something on the sun. He believed that there was something gilding its surface. It looked to him like the whole star was covered in glowing willow leaves. This was the chance John Herschel was looking for. The next year, he delivered an address in which he said that he had not only seen the willow leaves, too, but that they were proof of life. Indeed, John Herschel argued, the willow leaves were alive, and their bioluminescence was the true source of the sun's light. In just a few short years, astronomers had confirmed that Naismith's willow leaves were a product of the imperfections of his telescope. John Herschel went quiet. The prominence of Solarians died out only with the invention of spectroscopy, which William Herschel laid the way for, ironically. Spectroscopy showed unequivocally that the sun was a mass of incandescent gas, although it took a little longer for the nuclear furnace part to make sense. In 1896, looking back on the Solarian craze, Charles Augustus Young, the foremost solar spectroscopist in the United States, wrote, Herschel's theory satisfies all telescopic appearances of sunspots quite as well, perhaps, as any yet proposed. It breaks down in its assumption that the principal portion of the sun is a solid mass, an assumption now almost universally regarded as incompatible with what we know about solar temperature, radiation, and constitution. It seems to modern physicists an unavoidable conclusion that the sun's central mass must be gaseous. But until that time, Herschel's theory had been as good as any other, which means so was Dr. John Elliott's. He wasn't insane. At least not on the basis of his solar life theory. He was right in line with the best, or at least the most celebrated, thinking of his day. The defense's case broke down just like Herschel's eventually did. The jury did not believe that John Elliot was a lunatic. But there was still the matter of Mary Boydell and how she walked away from a double pistol blast fresh as a daisy. The prosecution argued that the guns had been fired at such close range that the balls weren't able to pick up sufficient speed to kill or injure her. Take a minute, think about it. Does that sound right to you? It's an honest question because personally, the defense's explanation seems just about equally suspicious. They said that John Elliott's plan was never to murder Mary Boydell. Instead, he only meant to kill himself. He had armed himself with a total of four pistols, two sets of two tied together. The second set, which were found loaded on his person by Justice Hyde, were intended for his own head. But the first set, which he fired at Mary, 
were never meant to do anything more than frighten her out of her cold-hearted disregard for him. The reason they didn't hurt her, John Elliott said, was because they were never actually loaded. Yes, I am squinting dubiously as well. But the recorder informed the jury that in order to convict John Elliott of the crime, it was necessary that they be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the guns fired at Mary were loaded, since the wording of the indictment accused Elliott of, quote, willfully and maliciously discharging two pistols loaded with powder and diver's balls at the person of Miss Mary Boydell. The jury did not know whether the pistols were loaded. Even if they didn't believe Elliot's story, they also didn't believe that two loaded pistols fired at close range could do so little damage. And so, John Elliot was acquitted. Not so fast, John Elliot stands. He was acquitted of attempted murder, but the judge had him remanded back to Newgate so that he could be tried again on the lesser charge of assault. At Newgate, John Elliot wrote his ridiculous confession and, through an act of sheer will that overcame all those who sought to stop him, starved to death there in protest of what he thought was his mistreatment. What a sunny ending. Huh? Well, that's what you're getting. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to all our Patreon supporters, especially Aaron Kristoff, Conchetta Gibson, Megan McDonald, Paul Savage, Maggie Osterberg, and Orion Gilliam. If you'd like to join them in supporting the making of this show, go to patreon.com slash theconstant to sign up. Or recommend us to a friend. Or a bunch of friends. Or all of your friends and their friends. Friends, friends, friends. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Wade Rausch, who helped find and surreptitiously deliver to me Dr. John Elliott's biography and confession, without which I would never have been able to make this episode. Give him a big thanks by checking out his podcast, Soonish. On the latest episode, Goodbye Google, Wade takes a deep look at the controversy over Google's firing of Timnit Gebru, a prominent black computer scientist who wrote about the danger of gender and racial bias in the company's AI algorithms. The show also explores what concerned internet users can do to scale back their reliance on the search giant. Listen at soonishpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the Adler Planetarium, this has been The Constant. <laughs>